Let's open God's word this morning to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, we will begin our reading at verse 17 and read through verse 40. We do so in connection with Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Context here is that there has been no rain for three and a half years according to the word of Elijah the prophet. And now God has told his prophet to go back to Ahab and to call for this contest on Mount Carmel that we read about in our scripture reading this morning. Let's begin reading at 1 Kings 18, verse 17. It came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou in thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people, and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them, therefore, give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under, and I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning, even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud. For he's a God. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey. Or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. And they cried aloud, and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets until the blood gushed out upon them. It came to pass when midday was past, 
And they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. Unto whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar. As great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the book Kishon and slew them there. We end our scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 34. Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 92 asks, what is the law of God? And then what follows are the Ten Commandments that we read earlier from Exodus 20. Question 93 How are these commandments divided into two tables? The first of which teaches us how we must behave towards God. And the second, what duties we owe to our neighbor. What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints, or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, with humility and patience submit to Him, expect all good things from Him only, love, fear, and glorify Him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures, rather than commit even the least thing contrary to His will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word, 
to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Congregation, how long halt ye between two opinions? That was the question that was put to the people of Israel as they stood upon the top of Mount Carmel. And that's the question that comes to this congregation as we sit here together in this sanctuary. How long halt ye between two opinions? How long are you going to suppose that joy and happiness can be found in the things of this life? Or in some person. How long are you going to look. Somewhere other than Jehovah God. To find your contentment. Your satisfaction. That's an important question. Because the reality is that. There is only one. Who can give us that joy, that happiness, that contentment, that satisfaction. That's Jehovah God in Jesus Christ. And it's that truth that we must come to see and to believe. Because it's only when we see this truth concerning our God. That we will have a proper perspective concerning the first commandment. That we will stop looking at it as a mere choice, a mere chore. Just some restriction that God puts in place. And instead we will come to see it as the way of wisdom. Instead we'll come to see it as God's own reminder whereby He directs our souls to Himself as the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings. My hope and prayer for this morning's sermon is that we are led to that very conclusion. This morning we begin the Catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments. The Catechism brought up God's law already in the first section of the Catechism, where it taught us about the knowledge of our sin and misery, and God's law was brought up there because God's law does indeed show us our own sin. But now the Catechism comes back to God's law here in the third section of the Catechism regarding how we are to show our gratitude for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And here we have the Catechism's fuller treatment of the Ten Commandments in which it goes through each one of them one by one explaining the meaning of each. It does so from the perspective of this is how we are to live as God's people out of Thankfulness for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So beginning this week and over the next several months, as a congregation, we will go through the Ten Commandments from that perspective. And this morning we begin 
with the first. And what we want to emphasize is the calling to find our satisfaction in God, not in idols. And we take that as our theme, finding satisfaction in God, not in idols. First, we'll look at the prohibition against idols. Second, we'll look at the vanity of those idols. And then third, turning away from those idols and thus turning unto God in Christ. In the first commandment, God forbids having any other God. Thou shalt not have any other God before me. It's important that we understand that standing behind the prohibition itself are the theological truths that on the one hand there is only one God and on the other hand therefore God alone can satisfy our souls. There is only one God. And that's the clear and consistent testimony of the whole of sacred Scripture. For example, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It's telling us there's only one God. This is the truth taught in Psalm 86, verse 10. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. And one more passage, Isaiah 46, verse 9, For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. There is only one God. And that's what Jehovah was showing the people of Israel that day as they gathered together on the top of Mount Carmel. For when they gathered together on the top of Mount Carmel, Israel was had given themselves over to the sin of idolatry. They were serving the God known as Baal and his counterpart, Ashtaroth. And this had become the, the official state religion of that day under the rule, the kingship of King Ahab. So that the nation as a whole was putting their trust in Baal, that Baal would provide for them all that they thought they needed. Thus God used Elijah to call all the people together to show very clearly there's only one God. For through Elijah, God called for a contest to see which God could send fire down from heaven. And though every conceivable advantage was given to the prophets of Baal, and though every conceivable disadvantage was given to Elijah, God's own prophet, there was only one God who could send fire that day. Jehovah. He is the God. That was the conclusion, the only conclu conclusion that could be drawn that day. For there are no other gods. And every other so-called God is but the invention of human, human depravity. And the corruption of our own hearts. And it's this truth that there is only one God that stands as the, the reason why God gives this commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me because there are no other gods. Now it goes deeper than that. Because it's not just that there is only one God. More than that, this God alone, therefore, can satisfy the longings of our soul. 
And that too is the clear and consistent testimony of sacred Scripture. It's the teaching of Psalm 63, verse 3, that we sang from at the outset of the worship service. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. That is knowing and experiencing God's loving kindness is better than anything this life has to offer. This is the truth that the psalmist confesses in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26 that we'll sing after the worship service, or after the sermon, I should say. There the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist is saying, there's nothing that I want more than God. There's nothing that my heart desires beyond Him because having God is to, to have God is to have everything that I need. He's the strength of my heart. And one more passage, Psalm 81, verse 10, which we sang before the Scripture reading. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Here, God Himself calls us to Himself and says, Come unto Me with all of your longings, with all of your desires, and I will satisfy them. I will give you what you need. Thus, we see very clearly that God alone can satisfy our souls. Contentment, satisfaction, joy, happiness, they're found in Him alone. He's the only one who can provide for us. Giving us what we need physically and spiritually. He's the only one who can protect us and keep us safe as we walk down life's path. And that helps us to understand the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because there are no other gods. There is only one God. But more than that, do not look anywhere else for the satisfaction of your soul, because God alone can satisfy it. That's when we understand that truth, that rather than viewing the first commandment as a chore, we come to see it as God's way of reminding us of this truth, of redirecting us to Himself, of telling us, do not look elsewhere. Do not look to something or to some person supposing that this thing or this person can Satisfy the longings of your heart because God alone can do that. Thus, we are not to trust in anyone or anything else other than God. That's the language that we find in the Catechism. Question and answer 95 asks this What is idolatry? And the answer is idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their Trust, and trust is the the key word there. Do not trust in someone or something other than God to provide for you. Do not imagine that if only I have this, then then all my needs will be met. Then, Then there will be food on my table. Do not trust in someone or something else for protection, supposing that well, if I have this in place, then, then we'll be secure. Then we can finally feel at ease. And all this is to say, do not trust in someone or something other than God for your 
happiness, for your joy. Because God alone can give that. You must look to Him alone. And that's what He was teaching His people on Mount Carmel that day. It comes out from verse 21 of the chapter that we read. Verse 21, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. Elijah speaks of the people halting. And the figure there is of a man whose knees or his ankles are out of joint so that first he's walking one direction and then he halts and goes the other direction. And the idea is he's, he's trying to have it both ways. He wants to have Baal and God at the same time. Elijah is saying enough of that. If you're going to confess that Jehovah, He is God, then follow Him and Him alone. And if you're going to confess that Baal is God, well, at least be honest about it. And quit pretending that you can have it both ways. For God is to be served in Him alone. He demands our full allegiance. Now, that does not mean that it's wrong to have a bank account, to have some sort of insurance policy. This does not mean that it's wrong, that it's sinful to find joy in our family or in the vocation that God has given to us or even some hobby. Because the reality is that all these things are gifts from our God. Gifts that are part of His own love and care for us. And gifts that He gives to us with a view to that we, so that we might enjoy them. But the key is that when God gives us these good gifts, we must not rely on them for that sense of safety or security. We must not depend upon them for our joy, for our happiness. But instead... With every good gift that God gives to us. Our focus must be on the giver. And not the gift. Not setting our hearts on the things here below. Not making an idol out of them. But instead, as re, but instead receiving them as coming from God. As a part of His care. And in thankfulness to Him. Focusing on the giver. The one who bestowed it upon us. But with that qualification in place, what we need to hear loud and clearly this morning is the calling. Thou shalt have no other gods, because there are no other gods. And therefore, there is only one Jehovah God who can satisfy our souls. We need to be reminded of this. This calling. Of this prohibition against idolatry. We need this reminder because there is a temptation for us to suppose that we are guiltless when it comes to the first commandment. To think that we have kept the first commandment and the calling that it brings to us. And we might be tempted to think that way, especially when we read a passage like 1 Kings chapter 18. Because the God 
the idol god that's being served here is Baal and Ashtaroth. And we might be tempted to think, well, I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have a, a little Buddha or any of the, the gods of the Hindu religion in my home. And therefore, I'm good. I'm not worshiping some little statue, and therefore, I'm guiltless, right? There's a temptation for us. Furthermore, we might have that temptation if we were to stop at the catechisms, after the catechism's opening lines when it explains to us the first commandment. Question 94 asks, what doth God enjoin in the first commandment? And the answer is that, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, I avoid and flee from all idolatry. Now it gives examples. Sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints, and any other creatures. And if we stop there, we might be tempted to think, well, I'm guiltless when it comes to the first commandment. Because the catechism here is addressing those forms of idolatry that were most prevalent when the catechism was written, shortly after the time of the Reformation. It speaks of sorcery, soothsaying, and superstition. It's talking about all occultic practices, the belief in the supernatural, and the the attempts to harness the supernatural. Furthermore, it goes on to speak of the invocation of saints. It's Addressing the Roman Catholic practice of calling upon Mary or praying to other, some other sacred saint. And again, we're tempted to say, well, if that's what's prohibited in the first commandment, well, then I'm good here. Because I'm not engaging in occultic practices. I'm not drawn to those things that go bump in the night. Nor am I ever tempted to pray to Mary or to some other saint. There's a temptation for us to suppose that we have kept perfectly the first commandment. But we would be mistaken to think that. Because we are far from guiltless here. And if you do not believe me, then let me put to you a series of questions. Answer honestly in your own soul. If I ask the question, fill in the blank. If only I had, then I would be happy. What comes to mind? Probably an idol. Let me ask the question a different way. You ever find yourself saying, I would give anything for this? Well, that this is almost certainly an idol. Or if we found ourselves speaking a different way, that All these other things profit me unless I have that thing over there. Well, that thing over there is an idol then. Something that we think we need in order to be happy, in order to have joy, to find contentment and satisfaction. And those idols can be exposed, especially when 
God in his providence and really in his mercy removes those things from our lives. How does it go for us? How do we respond when there's something that has become very dear to us and and God takes it away? If our response is one of anger, how dare he do that? God, I need that in my life. Well, what God is doing is exposing that that thing has become too big. It's become too important to us. It has become an idol. So what is it for you, child of God? Is it money? And possessions? Does our sense of safety and security come from seeing our bank account grow over time? Does our sense of happiness come from clicking checkout on Amazon? Or bringing home that latest purchase? Or is it health? And fitness, having a certain body. How upset do we become when we become sick or injured? Are we angry with God for taking away that thing I need? Is it entertainment? So that when our hearts are overwhelmed, rather than saying with the psalmist, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, we instead think, lead me to the couch, which is lower than I, so that I can drown out all the cares, all the anxieties, all the troubles of this life and forget about them and become wrapped up in this show or this movie. The sports whether the sports we play or the sports we follow. How often does our mood depend upon the outcome of the game so that my happiness is now wrapped up in the final score? Is it adventure? Thrills, a vacation? So that we find ourselves thinking, if only I could take this trip, then I would be happy. If only I had more time for this hobby, then I could have joy. Is it a relationship? And now a relationship may, may very well be a good thing, but that too can become an idol. We find ourselves thinking as young people, as young adults, I would give anything to be with him or to be with her. Or as a single member thinking, I would be content if only I had a spouse. Or if only I had children. Or is it the desire to be noticed? To have others think highly of us? 
Is it attention and affirmation that we think will make us happy? Insofar as within our heart there is that thinking, if only I had this thing, then I would be happy. I would have to have this in order to be content. None of these, none of these other things profit me. None of them do me any good without this. We must see we are far from guiltless when it comes to keeping the first commandment. The reality is that our hearts are full of idolatry. If we're ever going to turn away from them, we must see the utter vanity of those idols. And the vanity of those idols is they cannot satisfy. Because the vanity of idols is that they, on the one hand, do not give what they promise, and instead only bring us harm. And that's what God was showing the nation of Israel as they stood there on the top of Mount Carmel that day when Elijah summoned them there. God was showing them on the one hand your idols cannot give what they promise. And the idolatry of that day was the, the service of Baal. And Baal was a fertility god. The people worshipped Baal, supposing he, was the one, he would be the one to give them children. But not just give fertility to the women, but give fertility to the earth. So that Baal was imagined to be the god of rain and storms. Think about those two things for a moment. Baal is the god of rain and storms. Those are the things he's good at. But at Mount Carmel, God would make clear he cannot provide. He cannot give what he promises. And really, for the past three and a half years, God has been showing he cannot provide because there has not been one drop of rain since the word of Elijah to Ahab. Though the people have been crying out, Oh Baal, hear us! Send rain! Come on! He was completely powerless to deliver. And then God exposed that vanity still further at Mount Carmel. And calling for this contest, and calling, er, and proposing which God can send fire. And now, what are the prophets of Baal asking for? They're asking for a lightning bolt. They're asking for a storm. And remember, this is what Baal is supposedly good at. This is a contest on his home turf, as it were. But though they cry out to him again and again for hours on end, Baal cannot deliver. And so it is for every idol. They cannot give what they promise. But it's more than that. It's not just that they fail to give what they promise. It's that these idols, in fact, bring us harm. And that too is evident from Mount Carmel. 
see that in verse 28, for example. The prophets of Baal cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lanterns until the blood gushed out upon them. The prophets of Baal are stabbing themselves. This, these are not just little cuts with a, a few drops of blood, but it says the blood is gushing out and it says that they, they did this after their manner. This was a part of Baal worship. If you wanted to get his attention, you brought harm to yourself. That's how it goes for every idol. They do us damage. And we must see this vanity. Our idols cannot satisfy our souls. They cannot give what they promise. Oh yes, they may give a, a, a little pleasure for a moment. But it's so fleeting. It's over in just a moment. They cannot hear us when we cry out to them. They cannot deliver. And what is more, they really only bring us harm. Because the nature of idols is that rather than giving, they only ever take. They take away our time. They take away our energy, our resources. They demand that we give and give and give. They require that we do damage to our lives in order to serve them. And that's true of every single idol. Go back through the list. It's true of money and possessions. For how many lives have been destroyed in the pursuit of the almighty dollar? But that pursuit requires that we neglect the people who are most important to us. And for what? What good is all that money, all those possessions going to do us when we die? There is no comfort in money or possessions when we face that last enemy. It's true of physical health and fitness of having a certain body. Oh, how much we must give. So that we even have that saying... When we speak of all the blood, sweat, and tears that we put into this or that. And for what? So that someone noticed us for a moment and, and thought we looked nice? How fleeting, how, how vain, how empty. Because the reality is no matter how physically fit we might be, as we get older, we will more and more experience the effects of old age. We will succumb to all sorts of injuries and disease until at last we die. We go the way of all men and return to the dust of the ground. Same applies to entertainment. Oh, how much it takes. It takes away our time. It takes away our mental capacity. And it takes away 
a proper perspective of reality so that we are always left wishing if only my life could be like his life on the screen. Unless we're left despairing that our lives do not have that same fairy tale ending. This is true of sports. They may give an afternoon or an evening of happiness, but it's gone by morning. And if we're honest with ourselves, whatever sports team we follow, more often than not, it seems we're left disappointed, devastated at how bad our team is doing. It's true of adventures, thrills, vacations. Again, there may be a moment of pleasure, but it's soon over. We try to hold on to it. We take all the pictures. We take the videos. We go back to them. We try to remember how wonderful it was when we were here. But the reality is we're just left pining away, wishing that we could get to the next one. It cannot bring true, lasting joy. The same applies even to relationships. And here, we need to be careful because a spouse, children are indeed wonderful gifts from God. But no matter how wonderful that person may seem or may have seemed while you were dating them, every spouse finds out, I married a sinner. And therefore, part of marriage is being sinned against. There's that disappointment that comes. And no matter how beautiful, no matter how innocent looking our children may be when they first come forth from the womb, when they're baptized, for example, there's foolishness bound up in that heart. And there's going to be the, the difficulty, the frustration even of Raising that child and seeking to address that foolishness that is bound up in the heart. This is also true of that idol of receiving attention and affirmation from others. Maybe we get it for a moment. But again, it's so fleeting. It's soon gone. And more often than not, it seems that we're left devastated. We're left crushed because it seemed nobody noticed me. Nobody appreciates me. We must come to see the vanity of our idolatry. God has His ways of showing this. Even as He did at Mount Carmel. You see, there's a reason the prophets of Baal have to go first. It would not work for Elijah to go first to set, see fire come down from heaven. The people first had to see the utter powerlessness of Baal and his complete inability to give what he promises. And the fact that instead he only ever takes, he requires everything of us. He demands that we do damage to ourselves and we must see that concerning our idols. Now, when God exposes this, it may well be painful. 
It may be very unpleasant so that we do find ourselves crying out, God, what are you doing? I need that. Why would you take that away from me? But when and if God does that, it's an act of pure mercy. Because He wants us to cry out. What folly. Father, I have sinned. And I pray that You will forgive me of setting my heart on that thing or on that person. And the good news of the Gospel is that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Even as we see in 1 Kings chapter 18. For Jehovah God did send fire. But upon whom did that fire fall? The people of Israel deserve to have that fire fall on them. They've been worshiping Baal. They've been given over to idolatry. And on account of their idolatry, they deserve judgment to come raining down upon them. That fire should have fallen upon them. But that's not what happened. Instead, it falls upon that sacrifice that Elijah had prepared. And understand, this was a a sin offering. And that's evident from the time of day that this fell. We're told that it came during the time of the evening sacrifice. That's the the sin offering. the, The offering that's a picture of the substitute that's taking the place of us who are guilty sinners and the judgment of God falling upon that substitute. And all of this points us unmistakably to our Savior Jesus Christ. The one whose blood was shed in our place. The one who laid down his life on our behalf. And the one upon whom God's fiery wrath fell instead. That's the symbolism of that fire. It points us to God's judgment, His fury against our sin. It reminds us that during those three hours of darkness, our Savior endured the very agonies and torments of hell itself so that we might be delivered. There's forgiveness with God for the sake of Jesus Christ. And what makes this even more wonderful is that this is a forgiveness we receive apart from any work of our own. And that too is a part of this history. Because you will notice that God did not require that the people hurt themselves. God's word to the nation of Israel was not that you all have to cut yourselves, you have to injure yourselves, and then once I've seen you suffer a little bit, then I'll forgive you. We also see this in that altar that Elijah prepared. We read in verse 31 of Elijah repairing the altar. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob unto whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be thy name. And you can be sure that Elijah followed the Old Testament laws concerning such an altar. That he did not first take a chisel 
or a tool to these stones. He did not contribute anything. And all of this points us to the reality that we have the forgiveness of sins apart from our own working. It does not depend on me giving to God my good works or giving to God my repentance or even giving to God my faith. Here's my faith, God. Now receive me. But instead, it's based entirely upon the work of Jesus Christ, His perfect satisfaction, His enduring the wrath of God, as well as His perfect obedience, His keeping of the law for us and on our behalf. So that in Christ, we have all of the blessings of salvation. We have everything that we need. Do you see how totally opposite that is? From idolatry? With idols, we have seen that they cannot give to us what they promise. Our idols cannot satisfy our souls, but instead, they only take. They require of us Everything. And what a sharp contrast to that is the good news of the gospel. For the good news of the gospel is that God required everything of His Son. That He lay down His life that He suffer the agonies and the torments of hell so that God might give to us everything. He does not require that we give Him anything. He doesn't take anything from us, but instead He showers us with all of those blessings of salvation. He, he provides for us all that we stand in need of. And when we see that contrast, we go back to the question... How long halt ye between two opinions, congregation? By God's grace, let us turn away from our idolatry and turn unto our God in Jesus Christ. Let us turn away from our idolatry on the one hand. Even as we see that in this history, for at the end of this history, there is the slaying of the prophets of Baal. Verse 40, And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. This is a turning away from sin. And now, to be fair, this is not from the heart of the entire nation. And this will last only for a brief period of time. But nevertheless, this is a, a mortification of sin. This is a, a slaying of sin, a killing off of sin. And the same must be true of us. We are to turn away from our idolatry, mortify the old man of sin. And remember, that begins with true repentance. Repentance being sorry for my sins and seeking forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ, rending our hearts, not our garments, and taking with us words 
asking him to take away our iniquity. And then having confessed our sin, we are to hate that sin, to flee that sin. And that means insofar as my idol is something inherently sinful, I take that idol down to the brook Kaishan and I slay it. I put it to death. I destroy it in such a way that it's impossible to go back to it. Even for some idols that are legitimate things in and of themselves, we may well do the same. And for others, the things that we do actually stand in need of a thing, the things that would be sinful to completely destroy, well, then the calling is a grace-filled struggle to keep those things in their proper place. We must turn away from our idols, and instead positively turn unto our God in Jesus Christ. Turn unto Him for the forgiveness of sins. And the washing away of all of our adultery. Turning unto Him and looking to Christ as the only one who kept this law perfectly and therefore looking by faith and laying hold of His obedience as our own. Now to go back to the main point, we're to look to God in Christ to satisfy our souls. That's where we started. There's only one God, and thus there's only one who can satisfy our souls, God in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we look to our Savior to satisfy our souls in a way that no idol can. For He is indeed able to satisfy our souls. Do you believe that? What is it you want? What is it that you desire this morning, child of God? Is it riches? Well, in Jesus Christ are found all of the riches of salvation. And in Him we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places so that in Jesus Christ we are spiritual billionaires. Is it health you want? A certain body? Well, in Jesus Christ is found health for our souls so that we who were dead are made alive again. And as for our bodies, though they must go to the grave and return to the dust at the end, when He comes again, He will raise our bodies and make them like unto His glorious resurrection body congregation. He's going to give you a body fit for heaven. Is it thrills you want? Well, what could be more thrilling than the whole plan of redemption? which includes God's own Son coming down into this world to redeem us from our sin and misery. Is it relationship you want? Do you want to be a part of a family? Well, in Jesus Christ, we're adopted into the very family of God so that we have the Creator of the heavens and the earth as our Father. We have Jesus Christ as our elder brother and we have the entire church 
the world over as our spiritual brothers and sisters. Or is it this morning that you want someone to notice you? Are you starving for attention? Someone to see you, someone to hear you. You have the King of heaven and earth. The most important man in the whole universe looking down upon you with eyes of love. And he never takes his eyes off of you, child of God. And he will always hear you when you cry out to him. So look to Christ and find your joy your happiness, your contentment, your satisfaction in the only one who can satisfy your soul. And then come to look at the first commandment in a whole new light. Not just as this restriction, not just as a chore, but as a privilege. The way of wisdom. And God's constant reminder to us. To look to Him. For the satisfaction of our souls. Amen. Let us pray. Father which art in heaven. Blessed be thy name for thou art. The one true living God. Thou art the God who satisfies our souls. Deliver us from our idolatry. Cause us ever to look to Thee in Jesus Christ. For all of our joy, our contentment, and our happiness. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.